fascinated with um, study of the future. We're always trying to figure out what does the future hold. There's a channel on, the, on cable television called CNBC that you can uh, switch over to, and they have financial information. And you can, um, look, you can watch that show, and they'll, they'll prognosticate and predict about which markets are going to do what, you know, which national markets, which countries, you know, which, uh, whether gold and oil, um, which uh, market uh, in, in the States is going to do well, what kind of stocks, what kind of sectors of the market, uh, interest rates. Everybody's predicting because everybody wants to know, have a little bit of an edge, what's going to happen in the future. We have this desire to know what the future holds. We do this with sports. If you're a sports guy like me and you watch sports channels, we, there's always people on there predicting, okay, who's going to win the games today? Who's going to win the football next Saturday? Who's going to win the Super Bowl? Who's going to win the World Series? What off-season moves are going to be made? What manager's going to go where? Which co- player's going to go where? Um, not that it really matters to any of our lives, but we will want to know. We just have a sense that if we kind of understood the future a little more, somehow that would be a good thing. We do that with elections. During election season, people start to, you know, a year out, start to talk about who might get elected, who's got the best chance, what the polls say. We do that with the weather. We use sophisticated, multi-million dollar weather uh, technology to predict what the weather is going to be like tomorrow and a week from now. And just in case that wasn't good enough, we actually watch what groundhogs do, which is a little weird. Um, anybody have those little things when you're a kid uh, that you put... You fold it in some weird way, I don't know how, and you put your fingers in here and you, you move it like this and you put the initials of people in your class. How many of you did that? Okay, good, because most of you are looking at me like I was an idiot, so I want to make sure that I'm not alone. And you wiggle it around somehow, I don't remember how it worked, and then somehow it's supposed to tell you who you're going to marry, right? Which and I think, like, they're highly accurate, I think. Um, how many of you had an eight ball? Anybody, you know, like shake them and it says, you know, not likely or whatever. Um, We have this insatiable, incurable hunger to know about the future. Well, we've been walking through the story in the Old Testament of a guy named Daniel. And uh, he's a fascinating guy. He's a guy that the Bible says was one of those guys that had everything, you know, planned out. His life was going to go just right. He was from a rich, successful, influential family. He had all the best education. He was very intelligent. He was a good-looking guy. He was one of those guys that had the world was his oyster. He could do whatever he wanted to in life. And then, all of a sudden, the world that he had hoped to have came to an end. And um, this foreign army called the Babylonians comes in. They take him as slaves. They destroy his, his city. They destroy his home. They kill his family. And they take him off as a slave into their country. And we described how Babylon is that place, because all of us have those Babylons in our life, where life hasn't turned out the way we planned. And that was exactly the way it was for Daniel. And so uh, he's put in this position serving in the palace and he works his way up and becomes uh, more and more regarded and he repeatedly has to stand up for certain values even in the face of death and yet he does and uh, God continues to elevate him and he lives this life. One of the lessons we've learned is he lives this remarkable uh, life of understanding that God is God and I am not. God is in control. I am not even remotely in control but God invites me to walk with him through life and to be my friend. And so God used Daniel in remarkable ways, starting as a slave, becomes a very prominent uh, leader in this community, Uh, and he has such a heart for people to see God's kingdom expand. He ends up helping lead the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, who was the most powerful man in the world at that time. Uh, Pretty significant deal. But then years go by, Nebuchadnezzar dies, Belshazzar becomes king, who's this cruel, kind of ruthless uh, king, and then a new kingdom takes over, the Persians take over, and we saw last week how uh, Daniel has to once again stand up for certain values in the face of death. He's thrown into the lion's den, as many of you know that story, and by that time he's an old man, he's in his uh, late 80s most likely. 
had this history of this life where he's lived in this foreign country his whole life. And God has done some amazing things through him. He's had some peaks. He's had some valleys. And that's really where his story ends. He dies in Babylon. But there's still six more chapters of the book of Daniel. So what is this all about? Well, I told you at the beginning of our study, the first half of Daniel, the first uh, six chapters, was like a, a history, and the second six chapters were like an acid trip. Somebody suggested um, last, the last service, somebody said, you know, you've been asking people like if they had eight balls, and you should ask how many of you have had an acid trip. And I thought, well, in a church like Hope, there's probably a few. So I don't want to like put you on the spot. But um, here's the deal. Um, this, uh, this, the writing that happens in the latter, book of, uh, latter part of Daniel is a unique style of writing. I want to talk about it just for a moment. It was not uncommon in the Jewish culture. It's called apocalyptic literature. And uh, there's actually two kinds, there's two uh, places where apocalyptic literature appears in the, in the Bible. One is in Daniel. The other is in the book of Revelation in the New Testament, written also by a Jewish guy named John. Um, but again, if you read Jewish writings and Jewish religious stuff, um, th- this was not at all uncommon, a style of writing in the Jewish world. And here's the point of apocalyptic literature. The point is when the writer wanted to communicate about an epic kind of reality, about this epic struggle, this uh, kind of this struggle that would last for epochs, for eons, through all kinds of eras, between good and evil, this war that's existing kind of at a whole other level, if the writer wanted to write about this epic kind of battle, this epic kind of struggle, uh, communicating that times are hard, but God is in control and he sees, when he wanted to do that, but he wanted to do it in a short way, and he, want, he would use kind of mythic kind of language, not unlike we think of like Lord of the Rings or uh, the Chronicles of Narnia or something like that. Mythic kinds of language to communicate about a, a bigger, greater reality above everything that we kind of live in on the day-to-day level. And um, that was the point of apocalyptic literature. So I wanted, I wanted to give you that um, kind of overview, and we're going to read the first few, chat, first few verses of Daniel chapter 7, and I'm going to give you your first shot to see if you can kind of interpret what this means. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given to it. So you're like, okay, yeah, I know exactly what that means. Verse 5, and there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It raised up on one of its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. So it needs to floss apparently. Um, it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. It's kind of a destructive kind of uh, epic kind of scene there. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts. It had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up from among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth that spoke boastfully, which you'd have to say that's a fairly unique horn. Okay, stop there. Everybody clear on exactly what that means? Um, Okay, I told you that apocalyptic literature... Um, was written to kind of communicate these great themes. And the reason I told you about that is because you have to understand in the Bible there are different, and here's my big word for the day, genres of writing. There are letters in the Bible. There are historical documents in the Bible. There are apocalyptic 
documents in the Bible. There are, there's poetry in the Bible. There's actually proverbial style writing, uh, proverbs, all different styles of writing. And you have to know what kind of style you're dealing with. Based, that basis is kind of on how you interpret it. You don't in- interpret all writing the same. You don't do that in your life either. For example, you do not, uh, say you're in college, you do not interpret your science t- textbook the same way you interpret a love letter you write to your future spouse, um, the same way you would uh, great works of poetry in, in the literature department. They all are interpreted very differently. One is a letter, it's written very personal. One is a poetry, it's using kind of mythic kind of uh, a, a metaphor and simile. Things like, you know, my love is as deep as an ocean. Well, it's not really, but that's a simile, that's a metaphor. Um, and something that's historical or scientific, you read very different. So there's different styles of writing in the Bible, and you have to use the appropriate style of interpretation on each style. I say all that to say, there are people sometimes that get caught up in reading passages like this in terms of history. And they, they look at it like there's some kind of historical information or even like a secret code hidden in there. And so they look at the beasts and they look at the images and they play a kind of a guessing game and they try to match up which current organization or nation or empire or leader matches up to which beast or which horn or whatever. And they do this sometimes to fulfill that insatiable desire that we all have to know and predict the future and predict the end of time and understand what's going on in history. And so what happens is some people, and I'm not saying you can't do some of that study, the problem is some people become like prophecy junkies. And they, um, in order to not miss anything, they actually miss the, the bigger point, the bigger picture. For example, here's an example of how that's happened. For years and years and years, there's been debate within the church community, not, just the, not necessarily this church, but in church in general, about what do the ten horns mean. Some people years ago used to think that the ten horns represented the Greek kings that came after Alexander. The ten Greek kings. There are people um, several hundred years ago that thought the ten horns represented the leadership during the Napoleonic era of France's leadership. Napoleon was the Antichrist, and this was the beast that was coming to take over the world, and so that's what this represented. There are other people in the beginning of the last century that thought the ten horns represented NATO. And still others, even when I was a little kid, and I can remember somebody coming to my church and talking about how the ten horns, they, they knew for a fact, represented the ten-nation European common market, what's now referred to as the European Union. The problem is, when we go around and attach, you know, find any organization that has ten members and attach this to it, then there's a, obviously a good chance that we can be wrong. Um, but, but the problem is, we just kind of look around and say, well, here's ten, and that must be it, or here's ten, and that You know how many people are in the Chatham School Board? Actually, I don't know how many people are there, but <laughs> my point is, if there were 10, you could easily say that was the, the, the 10 horns. Um, people are always trying to match up stuff. Is this this? Is this that? And it's been going on for centuries. Which ruler is what? Which beast is what? Which country is what? And at times, they'll stake their life on something and pronounce, we know the secret, and so we know when God is coming back and the end of time is going to happen and all that kind of stuff. And here's the problem. When they're wrong, the gospel loses credibility with the watching world. So we're going to be very careful how we interpret this kind of scripture and what we say we know about this. I also want to say this, that well-meaning, very smart people who love God with all their heart radically disagree on how to interpret some of these passages. And would someone someone disagree with me? Now, I'm going to do my best in this, but if you disagree with me, that's okay. Here's the bigger point. 1 Corinthians says that I could have all wisdom, and you can have, all of us could have, all wisdom and all knowledge. We could understand everything there was about the Bible, all the little intricacies, ins and outs. But if we don't have love, it's not worth squat. 
And so if we disagree on this, that's okay. We're going to study and we're going to do our best and if we disagree, that's okay. But we should never let this come in the way of love and community and unity as a, a, a group of believers, okay? So my approach when I deal with apocalyptic literature is simply this. I start with the context. What does the writer, Daniel, want his readers to understand? Now Daniel is writing to a Jewish nation in exile. And I think one of the clues is found in verse 1, the very first verse of all of these visions. In the first year of King Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Think about that for a second. So you have this group of people that's been dragged from their homeland and lives now in this foreign country and everything they know and everything they love has been destroyed, including their religious system and the temple and the sacrificial system and they know the Messiah, which they're all looking for. The Messiah can't come until Jerusalem is rebuilt, so they're waiting. Years go by, 40 years go by or so, and the most powerful man in the world, Nebuchadnezzar, he converts to your faith. He converts to the Jewish faith. All of a sudden now, where there was no hope, there's hope. I mean, we've been stuck in this foreign country, but now this guy who has our life in his hands, he can send us home. He understands the coming Messiah. He understands the importance of the temple in Jerusalem. He understands all those things. Finally, this thing is going to come to an end. And then Nebuchadnezzar dies. And a new king takes over, Belshazzar, who this is written in the first year of his reign. And Belshazzar, as we remember from the story, is a cruel, ruthless, vicious leader who actually has such a disdain for the Jewish people that in the midst of this drunken orgy he has one time, he has them bring all of the the, the sacred things from the temple in so that they can be defiled during this orgy. You think the Jewish people are discouraged? There once was hope, and now it's gone. Are we going to be here forever? Are we ever going to go home? Is the dream God's dream? Is it over? Will the Messiah ever come? In the meantime, all we face again is a new wave of suffering and pain and persecution. And so there's discouragement and there's despair. Daniel's visions all communicate two things. And in fact, all apocalyptic literature communicates two things. The first thing it communicates is this. Expect serious problems. All apocalyptic literature and Daniel's visions communicate that. Expect serious problems. They say life is hard. Now we know that. Life is challenging. There's pain. There's hurt. There's there's, uh, grief. All those kinds of things. But part of what they communicate is not only is life hard. Life is not easier if you're a God follower. In fact, sometimes life is even harder if you're a God follower because you have to swim against the cultural currents of your day. See, I believe these visions are not necessarily about trying to guess and match and, and who is who and what is what, but rather they're com- communicating a very relevant, big picture truth to Israel in exile and to me and to you, which is this. The world is full of beasts. The world is full of empires, kingdoms, powers, and rulers that are self-serving and greedy and destructive, and they have values and um, activities that run contrary to the ways of God. They're cruel. They're, they seek pleasure at the expense of others. They're going one way, and God's kingdom is God's people are going another way. And because of that, there will be conflict between the two worlds. For example, verse 5, I described the uh, bear that has the, the ribs in its teeth and says, eat your fill of flesh. That's a very violent image. Think about that. Violence, consuming, destructive. But that's what empires do. That's what rulers do. They always have and they always will. 
in our own century, 2,000 years after this, we know of the Holocaust of the Jews. We know the racial cleansing in Bosnia. Just a few years ago, 800,000 people, 800,000 people were massacred over the course of two or three years in a country called Rwanda. In our own country, we have 9-11, we have the Oklahoma City bombing. And in reality, you don't have to look that much, different, that much further than your own heart to see the forces of evil at work, the forces of destruction, the forces of greed, the forces of selfishness. They exist out there and they exist in here. Look at verse 20. He says, I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up. He's kind of infatuated with these horns. Before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others, that had eyes, uh, had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. You know, there's a, um, there are forces in this world, in history, and in me and in you that are hostile to God and his ways. And these forces are, are real. And so Daniel says the people of God need to expect problems. Life is hard, but life will be even harder for some, sometimes for us because we're going against the stream. And so we should not be surprised if we have to endure difficult times. But we should also not give up because it's not the end. God sees and he knows. This passage about the, the horn waging war, there's been lots of speculation over the years. What does this mean? Is this something that happened in Daniel's time? Is this something we should keep looking for? Somebody that is to come. You know what? I think it's both. Again, this is communicating an epic ultimate reality. It, sure, it for sure happened in Daniel's day. Daniel saw this. Da- Daniel saw a very boastful king named Nebuchadnezzar lead his army, the Babylonians, into his city, Jerusalem, and level the city and level the temple and wipe out his family and his friends and drag him off to a foreign land as a slave. Daniel saw in his own day waging war against the saints. And he would see it again with the Persians. And the people of Israel would see it again with the Greeks. After Alexander, there's a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes who so hated the Jewish people that every day he would come to the temple, God's temple, and take a pig, which was considered defiled, and sacrifice it on God's altar as a direct affront to God's people. And they dealt with it with the Romans, And then the church dealt with it. An emperor named Nero, they used to take Christians alive and dip them in oil and light them on fire as torches for his garden parties. An emperor named Domitian that used to throw children and women to the lions in the Colosseum. And this is still happening. There is evil in the world and it is running contrary to the things and values of God. And it's destroying And it always has been and it always will be. It is now. New Yorker magazine, a secular magazine, had a story about the persecution of the church. In a country um, where the church was uh, persecuted, the story ran of a a teenage girl that was captured by a non-Christian group just because she was a Christian. And she was raped and abused repeatedly by the soldiers in this group. But in the midst of all of that abuse, it was reported that she sang hymns. After a while, they tired of her singing, their article said, so they shot her in the chest, and still she sang. And so they shot her again, and still she sang. And soon, their cruelty turned to fear in the face of this. And so to finally cease her singing, they took out their machetes and hacked through her neck. 
That really happened in our day. That was a real person. See, the world is full of kingdoms and rulers and people and hearts like mine and yours that have beasts in them that are bent on destruction and living for themselves. And then there's God's kingdom, a kingdom of love, of others focused, of generosity. And these two kingdoms are at war, and they're at war out there in the world, and they're at war in our neighborhoods, and they're at war in our families, and they're at war in our own hearts. There's a war going on, and Daniel says, you need to know there is a war. And you need to expect serious problems because there's war. But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Daniel says, and all this apocalyptic literature communicates the same thing. Expect serious problems, but, number two, you need to live with an awareness of an ultimate heavenly reality. See, these are epic kinds of stories, mythical kinds of stories, communicating this ultimate reality. Verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and his wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. See, Daniel says there are beasts. There are beasts in the world. There are beasts in our hearts. And sometimes we feel helpless, and sometimes we feel hopeless, against those beasts. Any of you feel that way? Anybody feel that way? You feel like there's a beast devouring your marriage, the beast devouring a child, your career, your finances, inner struggles that go on in all of us. All of us at times feel helpless, we feel hopeless. You're not the only one that has felt that way. Daniel says there are forces of evil in this world and in me and in you. But there's an ancient of days who is pure and powerful and in control and he sees and he understands and he's full of love and grace and he will make things right. He will redeem. He will rescue. He can be trusted. Daniel gives us a very brief description of the ancient of days, but I don't want to gloss over it and move it through quickly because I think it's a very powerful description that can touch some of our hearts. In verse 9 he says, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took a seat. Thrones are always symbolic of power and of justice. You know, the judgment seat. We, in our own culture, we're talking about a judge and the bench they sit on. It's justice. How many of you have ever been hurt? Of course you have. Every single one of us has. You can't live very long in this world without being hurt, without being taken advantage of, being abused, being wounded emotionally by a spouse or an ex-spouse or a friend, or a teacher, or a boss, or a coworker, or a parent. And many of us carry bitterness and anger, and we ask ourselves, why is justness not done? Why did they seemingly get away with it? And Daniel says, you have to understand, there is a God who sits on that seat, and justice will be done. Maybe not in the timetable that you'd like to see it, but justice will be done. So you don't need to carry that worry, and that anxiety, and that anger, and that bitterness. You can let it go. And let the, the ultimate judge deal with it on your behalf. Daniel describes him as having his hair on his head was white like wool. That's a sign of wisdom, white hair. 
In other words, Daniel is saying God can be trusted. You know, we get on these treadmills and we try to, try to get everything we can get out of life to meet our needs. We manipulate our relationships to get our needs met. We kind of coerce things at work to get what we want at work. We, we try to be in control of everything. And Daniel's saying, just step back. God is wise and he knows what you need. And so if you put your life in his hand, he can give you the life that you want. Daniel describes God. His clothing was white as snow. That's a sign of purity. Any of you struggle with the evil that's within you? Anybody ever feel broken inside? God is a God that can redeem our past and our mistakes and our wounds. He is a healer and he's a God who transforms. And yet sometimes even in the midst of that, we still struggle with our brokenness. I was thinking this week about how frustrated I can be on the ways that I can, I can wound those in my family with my words or have inappropriate thoughts or just the constant stream of pride that is in me that once my needs met above other people's, my agenda respected above other people's, I don't even aware of it most of the time. It's just constantly there. There's a lot of ugliness in me. Is there any ugliness in you? Daniel's saying, you have this ancient of days who is pure. And he knows what it is in you that needs to be cleaned up. And he can do that in a very gentle and gracious way. Because his purity is based on love. You see, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And he died on the cross. And the amazing thing is, through the cross, this pure God, this ancient of days, who sees all the junk in me and in you, but he doesn't condemn us or hold, us against, hold it against us. He redeems us. And through the cross, he says, I'm going to take all that junk in you, and I'm going I'm to put it on myself, says the ancient of days. And then I'm going to take that white purity that I have, and I'm going to put it on you. So now, no matter where you've been or what you've done or what you will do, from now on, all I see is whiteness, is purity. As Isaiah said, though your sins may be like scarlet, you will now be whiter than snow. Daniel goes on to describe the ancient of days. The river of fire flowing and thousands and tens of thousands attending. Those are images of power. People at the ancient of days beck and call. Is there anywhere in your life you need God's power? See, the ancient of days not only redeems your past, but he gives you power for the future. See, after the cross comes the resurrection and an opportunity to live a new and better life. So is there any, any place you need God's power? In your marriage, with your kids, in your health, with that addiction, with that the struggle, with depression, with the financial pressures, with your health, with your work, anywhere you need God's power. We felt it was very important we don't gloss over this description. We understand the God that we have available to us. And we wanted to build communion into this time of reflection. The word communion means to be with, to communion, with unity, with oneness. See, the amazing thing about the ancient days, who is all those things that I described, is this amazing God that says, even though I have all this, my ultimate desire is to just walk with you, to be with you, to be one with you. And so I'll send my son to the cross to make that happen. And he invites us to this table to take communion as a symbolic way of remembering this mystical thing that happens of oneness with God that you and I are invited to do. So we invite you right now, and I'm going to invite the elders to come on up. We invite you right now to think about these different aspects 
of God. I want you to think about God, the, the, God's wisdom, and you're safe in His hands. I want you to think about God's power. Where do you need God's power? God's purity. Where do you need God to help you overcome some things you've struggled with? God's love. What aspect of God really struck you this morning? Spend some time meditating on that. And that that God, that amazing ancient of days, wants to walk with you and be with you. We're going to play some instrumental music. And whenever you're ready, after you've done some reflecting and meditating, we invite you to come up and partake in communion together as a community. We practice open communion here, which means you don't have to be a member of this church. As long as you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, we invite you to come and take communion.
I had asked Doug to um, rearrange some things, how we ended the service, because I really felt like we needed to do it a certain way, and he graciously, and the band musicians graciously did, and I uh, have been praying that God gives me the words to communicate this how I believe he wants it to be. But look at verse 11, if you would. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. I want you to notice that uh, these beasts that all seem so powerful and so destructive and so big, how easily they're slain and thrown down. We live in this area, we watch movies and we expect kind of, you know, there's going to be this big epic kind of battle. But this battle is over before it begins. There, it is no contest. God's power is unchallenged. And so there's no fight. There's no struggle. When God decides it's done, it's just done. Verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Does that sound familiar to anybody? The Son of Man, um, is a, it's a reference to the coming Messiah we would know as Jesus. He actually referred to himself more as the Son of Man than any other title. And he actually quoted this passage right here. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. See, Daniel has this vision and these visions, and they communicate this epic struggle between good and evil, of kingdoms and rulers, and a struggle that's going on in my heart and yours. There are beasts bent on destruction, and yet there's an ancient of days who is good and pure and powerful and in control and full of love. And when the time comes, he will lay waste to them all and outlast all of them. And so the vision ends, and really all these visions end, with a scene of worship. And I just felt very strongly there was no better way for us to end this message or this series through Daniel. And so the team is going to lead us in a minute. But I want to ask you to do something that may be a stretch for some of you. But I want to ask you to give God the kind of worship that he deserves, that's appropriate for the kind of God that Daniel described earlier. And I want you to think about Daniel and his life. This guy who had his life all planned out and then he ends up in Babylon, this God-forsaken place, a place he never wanted to be, a place where his life had not turned out the way he planned. And yet God raised him up. And through his life, he changed the fate of nations and rulers and lives. A few years after his death, this lady named Esther becomes queen. A few years after that, a guy named Nehemiah finally leads the people of Israel back to their land and rebuilds the temple and rebuilds the walls. And a few years after that, the Messiah Jesus comes. But it was all set up because this guy Daniel, who found himself in a place he never wanted to be, this Babylon, decided that he would put his life in God's hands. And through him, God did remarkable, amazing, extraordinary things. And Daniel's life was an adventure. But your life can be too. But we are in the midst of this epic reality, Daniel says. Remember this. There is an ultimate reality going on. So expect difficult times because there's a war being waged. Outside of our hearts and inside. 
but we need to live with an ultimate understanding, an ultimate sense of the reality that's there, that our God, the Ancient of Days, will be victorious. And his kingdom will last forever. And this Ancient of Days, who was wise and pure and full of love, who sent his Son, the Son of Man, for us, redeems you and redeems me in whatever Babylon we find ourselves in. And so in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and will never, ever pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never, ever be destroyed. 